Hey beautiful person, I'm really excited to bring this content to you today. Just quick disclosure, if this is your first time tuning in, you definitely need to go back and binge listen to all of my episodes. I am a single mom dealing with a toxic breakup, messy, past due relationship. I don't even know what to call it. It's just a hot ass mess over here, but I'm sharing my life with you to hopefully inspire you. However, life still has its hiccups. And with today's episode, I just wanted to be upfront and let you know that I did my best to try and plan to schedule this interview with my daughter not around. However, when you're co-parenting, you just never know what's going to happen. And unfortunately, she was present during this interview, but you still got to make things happen. You still just have to take everything for what it is. So please excuse the little mini voice, mini me in the background of some of my questions. I did my best to edit the content so that way you can actually take away all the information that is presented. But other than that, I hope you enjoy. You are now listening to Sierra Unraveled, hosted by yours truly. I am a single mother who finally released myself from a toxic relationship with the help of God, of course, so I can pursue my wildest dreams. Tune in every week for some crazy stories, real life drama, and motivation to keep going. You got this. I am Ida. To be bold or courageous in Choctaw, you talked about small acts of courage and big acts of courage, asking for things you might not get, but you won't know unless you do, in order to save ourselves. Those are just two things that I took away from your presentation that you did for the TED Talk, and that's exactly what I did when I reached out to the intimacy doctor herself. You are a best-selling author with almost a dozen books on the market, a certified sexologist, professional counselor with emphasis in trauma-informed care, a board supervisor for the state of Texas, and um, most importantly, your mom too. So I didn't know if you would even respond to my email. Shit, I've only been like podcasting for I think like five months now, if that. So on, however, on my journey of self-healing, I knew that if I ever wanted to love again wholeheartedly after what I've gone through in my life, I know that I have work that needs to be done and only work that that can be done by myself and work that might need to involve me picking up a book called Unfuck Your Intimacy for the second time written by you. So here I am taking small leaps of courage to unfuck my own intimacy to maybe inspire my listeners to do the same. So welcome to Sierra Unravel, Dr. Harper. I'm really thrilled to have you here today and grateful for you to be here. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm excited to chat with you and your baby. Also, I just want to thank you so much for being super laid back and go with the flow. You didn't even want to know what I was going to ask you ahead of time, which shows a lot about your character. Some people are like, I don't know what this chick's going to ask me. She's kind of wild. but <laughs> uh, Well, no, you, I mean, you made me sound super fancy. So we'll go with that. Um, you know, my introduction on myself, you're like, oh, I'm just a private practice therapist. Oh, no, um, so much more than so, that. <laughs> I mean, and I appreciate like, you know, people want to like, you want questions ahead of time. And I appreciate how that, that that's extra work for you and so I you know if people have it ready to go that's awesome but yeah I always tell people like if if that's helpful for you to send it to me ahead of time that's fine but um it's also fine to not send it like do whatever you need to do for your work process if I can't answer a question I'll just tell you I don't know (laughs) it's you know yeah so how do people um with relationship trauma and fuck their brain boundaries or intimacy in a nutshell so like they can actually maybe one day enjoy sex, love, and maybe even a healthy relationship. 
Yeah. Um, well, the, I mean, there's so much involved in it as, as you well, as you well know, um, you know, essentially the, any experiences that we have get stored, um, to protect us in the future. So traumatic experiences, you know, they hold, they're a, spe- a special kind of memory that holds in a special part of the brain that our brain uses to say hot water burn baby. Um, you know, and the brain's job is to keep us alive and keep us safe, not to try and differentiate when snap decisions need to be made, which is then why we have those kinds of issues with our boundaries, um, with intimate relationships, whether it be friendship or, you know, romantic partner or whatever it is, that that stuff gets activated and comes up for us and the brain goes, hot water, burn baby, you need to get out of there. Um, you know, attachment issues that we had in childhood or previous, you know, abusive relationships and those kinds of things all wire. And so we have to work within that system. We can't wrestle control away from a survival instinct. Um, That doesn't work. Anyone who's ever tried can agree with that. It has nothing to do with, you know, you know, being strong hearted or anything. It's your brain saying, I'm trying to keep you alive and you're being very ungrateful and I will knock you out if you don't pay attention to me. And so we have to work within that system versus against it. And I think like the common idea is like, you just need to power through it and you just need to, you know, use this affirmation and everything will be fine. And it doesn't work that way. Um, you know, trauma informed care work is, is sort of continuous it's not even a matter of getting better so much as getting better at it, of recognizing this is an experience that I had that no longer defines my present. It's something that I survived from my past. And, you know, there, there is a, there's heavy work to be done around that. I always tell people, I, I don't know how to do easy work, but I know how to do difficult work. Um, so if you're looking for easy, not the right therapist for you. Right. Um, there's so much to work on there. And it feels very frustrating and overwhelming. But then a few months later, you're like, oh, I just got aware of my reaction there. And so I, rather than yell at people, I just, I dealt with it and recognize that I was having a reaction and I didn't try and swallow it down. And I just recognize that my body's really upset right now and, you know, and did something healthy with it rather than screaming at my partner. Right. Um, And so that's where, that's what trauma recovery is, is the your brain not perceiving being a victim in the present, um, the things that we were victim to in the past and recognizing that in the present we are a survivor and this doesn't inform our current experience. Gotcha. Definitely. I agree with that hundred percent. So how important do you think it is? I, myself, I'm in therapy. So it's like, this. you're not like my my therapy session right now. I'm really just trying to like shed light from another therapist. My therapist, she operates kind of similar mindset as you, not everyone's different in their own way, but, um, but how do you think, or how important do you think it is that people who have been in abusive relationships or have had some type of relationship trauma, whether it was intimate or not, um, seek therapy? I mean, obviously I know it's what you do, so you're always going to advocate for it, but like delaying something like that could really be detrimental to their mental health. Yeah. And I realize that, you know, we're here in the U.S. where our ability to access care is not guaranteed. Um, so I know a lot of people that just they they don't have insurance. There's no affordable options. You know, they're stuck within um, a very specific system and trauma informed care is not part of that system. They're at a community mental health clinic or whatever. So I, I recognize that that even being able to go to therapy is a matter of privilege. 
Um, and that, I mean, that sucks, and I would love to change that, but that's where we are right now. So there are plenty of people that are like, yeah, it's all well and good to tell me to go to therapy, but I can't afford that. And that's, that's, that's reality for them. Um, I, I think that whether we're going to therapy or not, a lot of that work is being done in our day-to-day lives. Um, so if, if therapy is not something that somebody can afford at a particular given time, there's still active work that can be done on it, which is why there are so many books out on the market. I think therapy gives you perspective. Um, you know, you go in and see your therapist and you're like, I had this reaction to the situation. And she goes, hmm, you know, that makes sense because that happened six weeks ago. And you're like, oh, shit. Yeah. OK. And so somebody's helping you see things from a different perspective, but you're still having to go the next week and then put that stuff into action and practice new skills. And, um, you know, we have training, but it's mostly perspective and insight and those kinds of things that help guide the process. So if somebody listening would love to be able to go to therapy, if that was available to them, and it's simply not, I think that we can still do a lot of healing work. And yeah, and finding the the kind of therapist that is a match for you. I am either exactly your style or somebody that you're not going to like at all. Um, And either is fine. You know, the point is getting better, not working with me or with anyone else in particular. I think that we are working to really done a lot of work in destigmatizing therapy. Uh, therapy was the thing that you did if you were crazy right. um, versus this is something, this is ment- mental health care, which is part of physical health care. You go to the dentist, get your teeth cleaned, hopefully. You go to the doctor and get a checkup and get your labs um, regularly, hopefully. And you go to therapy to get that level of support in your life. Um, you know, my own therapist before she retired, she's like, why, why are you here? Like you dealt with the stuff that you came in on. You're really healthy. Um, like, what are we working on, girlfriend? And, and I was like, I like having, I I like to be able to bring in my box of kittens, you know, and help, help you help me herd these kittens up. And I like to be able to have the check-in of like, does this make sense? Am I viewing this right? Or am I so close to that? You know, my thoughts are distorted and even having somebody be like, yeah, that's fucked up. You're right. (laughs) It's helpful. Yeah. Um, definitely. Yeah. And, you know, didn't even see her a whole lot, um, by the time I had, you know, gone through the grief work that I had gone in for, but it was nice to have that, that check-in with somebody. And I think every, and I have lots of clients that I maybe see once or twice a year, mm-hmm. you know, we, we work together pretty regularly for a while. They're in a good place. Once or twice a year, something comes up and they're like, Hey, you know, my history and I'm curious on your perspective on this issue. And it's good to have that person. Like you may not go to, you know, your asthma doctor, pretty frequently, but it's nice to know that they're right, there. It's like going to the gynecologist doctor. like once a year, hopefully, if you don't have any issues. <laughs> yes. Right. So yeah, not, yeah, as not as painful yes. for sure. And then definitely like having, finding a therapist that works with you, that you mesh well together can have, have a, a positive or negative effect on how you view, view therapy as well. So if the person you're seeing might not work, then you probably, you not need to switch it up a little bit. So, and that's not a bad thing either. Just, it's not a one shoe fits all person kind of thing. So one of my favorite chapters from your intimacy book was about religion and sexuality. So can you explain like your upbringing (laughs) to my listeners and your view on the matter? And if that view has changed over time at all? Sure. Um, So I am a preacher's kid, essentially. My, um, my father is a Roman Catholic deacon, an ecumenical Catholic priest. Um, my mom was a Roman Catholic spiritual director, which is its own training process in the church. My dad grew up Church of Christ um, and, you know, became Catholic when he met my mom. 
Um, but my parents were very progressive. Um, they were Catholic, but in a way like they really wanted to change a lot of the issues within the church um, that they still, you know, believed in the catechesis and those kinds of things. I mean, I grew up with that as my teething ring, but they weren't assholes. Um, and I was always allowed to challenge doctrine and ask questions and, you know, have my perceptions validated. I remember as a pretty young kid coming home from um, CCD and which is like Catholic Bible study and um, having being like really upset and telling my mom, do you know, this bitch told me that if a baby dies before it's baptized, it's going to hell. Right. Like what the fuck with this church? And she's like, that's absolutely not true. That's not how it works. And I know you, if that's how it worked, then you would just, if you died, you would go to hell to take care of the babies. And that's fine too. Like, you know, I was a precocious little, like I was <laughs> seven or something, but I was, yeah, um, that, that's just like me in a nutshell, really. Um, and so I was always allowed to have like this bigger experience. So the definition that I use of spirituality is, is purposeful belonging. And I was allowed to have that experience um, and was encouraged to investigate different options eventually as an adult became um, a Buddhist, actually took refuge in the Buddha, done refuge vows. And my family would never saw that as a problematic thing. My mom as a spiritual director used quite a lot um, from the Buddhist tradition in spiritual direction. And I think it even one point told me like, I really, I don't want to upset your dad. Like I'm the vegan's wife. So this is, but uh, I would probably also just embrace Buddhism, you know, cause her thing was like, God, all of this, everything that we're talking about, is just love. Um, and everything else is superfluous to the process. Um, my parents were very liberal, very open and, and sex positive. I did a TED talk where I told a story about my parents and my dad, like I remember, you know, called me after the TED talk. He's like, oh my God, you told that story. Do people know that that's a hundred percent true? And I'm like, yeah. well, I hope they know that it wasn't like lying. Um, and he said, well, if you ever like are doing something like that again and you need a, you know, a dirty story, tell me what the topic is and I'll say something disgusting for you. Uh, like, you know, very open and positive. Um, my, when my brother married his husband, my father performed the ceremony. So they are not Catholic probably in the way that people would think. In fact, he became an ecumenical Catholic priest specifically. So there would be those broader boundaries. And he, he really did perform, um, the marriage ceremony for my brother and brother-in-law. So, um, like having this, this big experience of all the things that religion and spirituality can be, was always a part of my life. Um, I really like, so I don't know if you're aware of Mary Catherine Bateson's work. She um, she just died a few weeks ago. She was the daughter of Gregory Bateson and Margaret Mead. So she was also an anthropologist and a linguist. And she was very spiritual when she was raised by atheists. In fact, that was the big thing was Margaret Mead had their baby. Um, Gregory, uh, Gregory Bateson was out of town, but he sent her a telegram, congratulations, don't you dare baptize her. He grew up being an Episcopalian um, lecturer coming from this atheist background. And, you know, people would ask her, well, what do you think? Like, what's the difference between religion and spirituality? And she said, well, that's the wrong question. She said, you can be um, devoutly religious. You can be more kind of bigger and spiritual. You can be none of those things. You can just kind of be a secular humanist. And you can do things by rote 
or you can live in the world engaging in a sense of wonder. And that's the important thing, whatever frame you put on it. She said that she and her, her dad actually had some really beautiful conversations about the Bible and stuff, but her parents really engaged in the world with this sense of wonder and connection to everything out there. And that was the important part of who they were. And she ex- expressed it um, as an Episcopalian, but Episcopalian didn't matter so much as that was her way into experiencing the world with wonder. So to not do things by rote, but to do things with wanting to put love and goodness out in the world. So I kind of like that idea of it. And that's how I was raised. Well, I think it's beautiful. Like, I think that's the most beautiful thing about humans is that we can have, we can offer that bridge. Like my listeners know that like I was baptized like a year ago and I wasn't, I was raised like my family's a little bit Catholic, a little bit. Um, and then my dad's Jehovah's Witness, but they never like forced religion on me. And I just feel like this, I might not view religion the same as everyone else does. But the most important thing is that like, I'm willing to love other people. And like, so everything else kind yeah. of is like, it shouldn't be as strict as people make it. It just sometimes gets blown out of proportion. When it, and, it gets, and it gets weaponized. And, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to take that back. It should be a tool of connection, not a tool of separation. I agree. Um, so in a podcast interview you did with uh, The Bigger Picture, you said that we're born perfect. Um, we're born good and pure. And the goal is to get people back to who we are and connecting to that person. And when I heard that, I immediately thought at the center of your being like you're a mother. And from one mother to another mother, do you think it can be difficult to detach yourself from... <laughs> Terrible twos, man. <laughs> do you think um, it can be difficult to detach yourself from who you are actually as an individual versus who you are as a mother? It is. And I think a lot of that's cultural as well, right? Um, it becomes this idea that your motherhood comes first and your children come first over um, your partnerships, over all these other things. And that is another, um, you know, another lesson that I really got from my parents was to not do that. Um, Our children need us to be fully formed um, human beings that have our own things that we're passionate about. And, you know, and then, you know, if we do have a partner that that, that sh- it should be you and your partner against the world, right? And that, and so my mom told me when I was pregnant, and my kids are in their twenties now. But um, make sure you don't put your child first. You put your husband first, and the two of you together put that child first. Um, don't lose each other in this process. And that was very powerful for me. And it was also very powerful for me to, and I went through, cause I did, I chose to, and it, money was very tight, but was able to make it work to stay home when, before my kids went to school. And I really did have a lot of losing of myself in that process and had to, to get back to myself. And that's actually when I went back to school and those kinds of things. And that was very valuable for my kids to see. Mm-hmm. I was happy. I was authentic. I was engaged in the world. And that made me a better mother in the long run. But I had to let go of the mommy guilt and trust that to be true. So my kids grew up, you know, going to conferences and, you know, work with me and having the nap, you know, having the nap sofa and seeing that. But that was good for them, too. And they were fine. And people to this day remember stories of 10 years ago, you know, bringing my son to a conference because he um, got suspended for school. So his punishment was he had to wear the pinata costume at the conference and give out flyers, you know, and they're like, 
you know, I'm just like, I am still living this life and you don't get to, like, I'm still going to find a way <laughs> to punish you for getting your dumb ass suspended um, and do the things that I need to do. Like, that was like literally a decade ago and people are still like, power move, pinata costume. I remember that. And kids need to, they need to have, um, they need to see adult examples of people, you know, choosing their lives and engaging in their lives and having this life outside of them and, you know, not having the, like, I'm just the mom of, you know, we see people's online handles as mommy of three or whatever. I'm like, yeah, but what's your name? <laughs> you know? And I think we need to ground ourselves in our own existence um, because we want our kids to do that. We don't want our kids to get lost into these other roles of I am a parent, I am a spouse, I am um, a carpenter, whatever. Um, is I am this human being that contains all these other things. Um, kids need happy parents. And if they, you know, have two parents that are in a relationship together, need to see that thriving, connected. Um, it's your, you know, your other parent and I against the world partnership. Right. Otherwise, we're, we're doing them a disservice. Right. So then on the flip side of that, um, for someone who who's technically considered a single parent, um, a lot of people have like misconceptions. We kind of talked about it earlier briefly about how like people don't go to therapy really because then you're like deemed as crazy, but um, particularly like couples who have split up or even single parents um, going into therapy, they don't want to go because they're worried about how others will view them for seeking help. And do you think that parents should receive like automatic resources to uh, attend therapy sessions after a breakup because there is a child or children involved? And the only reason why I'm asking this is because like, therapy wasn't really mentioned like it was briefly but they didn't really like they didn't really push it as much as I feel like they could have because I personally have benefited a lot from going and I think that if I would have gone sooner it would have helped me more yeah and I and I know so the the one thing um when I got divorced in the 90s that I was required we were required to go to a it was a called helping children cope with divorce it was a parenting through divorce class that was not particularly useful. I mean, there, there are occasions and times where that might be. And actually, I don't even think the court ordered it. My lawyer said, why don't you do this? Because I think that your soon-to-be ex-husband needs this. And if you do it, then the judge will also make him do it. Right. <laughs> so it was, um, it still was sort of a, a sort of a backhanded way of trying to get some cohesion there. Um, I, and I um, went through therapy through that process and it was really helpful for me he didn't do shit mm. and I don't know you know I don't know much about his thought process in that time period I know that I've done that work and seen it be very very helpful for people of working through people because sometimes people come come to me and they're on the precipice and they're trying to decide like do I stay or do I go and part of it is well either way you're still a family mm -hmm. the dynamic of that might change but um y'all have kids somebody needs to be the grown-ups in the situation so it might as well be y'all right just a suggestion. Um, so let's work on that. And um, I, I call it my divorce doula work of helping people navigate that process is like this, this is the, this is the, the other parent of your child and they are a part of your life. And things are going to be much easier if you can be, you don't have to be besties. Um, my oldest dad and I are not, but when it comes to our kid, we communicate and our kid has grown now, but sometimes we still have to communicate and they can't triangulate with us. You know, they try and tell their dad one thing and he would text me and be like, no, 
He's like, okay, you know, you need to be able to have a, a workable relationship because the fact that you are a family does not change. Um, and that is always helpful. In fact, I had um, one divorce I worked with the uh, husband and wife. The husband was the, the breadwinner and the wife had been um, a stay-at-home parent. And, you know, they ended up making some really good decisions. He's like, rather than like being cruel to you and not really giving you anything other than basic child support. I would rather the kids be able to like be home with you than be in daycare all day. So I'm going to, I want you to have, you know, the financial means to do that rather than me paying it to a daycare, which is crueler for them just to fuck with you. Um, And so he did that. And then he also said, you being able to continue to work with faith has been very good for all of us. So I will continue to pay faith for your sessions um, because that is helpful to me. It's helpful to you. It's helpful to our children. Um, So I will, I will just cover um, your sessions with her as long as you want to go. Like, and that was very, like, that was such a, a thoughtful, like these are, I'm not going to do things to punish you because I'm upset. Like we still have to be able to have this relationship. So I'm thinking about what's best for all of us and that's money well spent. And the more we can do that, the better in the long run. And I tell people all the time, yeah, your kid's young right now. And so they're maybe they're more internalizing, but you're going to have hell on your hands when they're a teenager and they realize they can triangulate the two of you. So get it together now. Right. And then also, even if one of one, only one person wants to go, it's still better than no one going at all. At least someone. Yeah. Try. And I, and I talk to people too, like you're, you know, if your ex-partner is saying shit about you, don't, respond in kind. It's not going to feel good now, but I promise that will come out in the wash. Your kids will eventually recognize what's going on. Be the better, bigger person now. Um, You know, and if the other parent is, you know, saying shit about you, just say, well, that's not a true statement, but you know, that's between, that's between mom and dad, or, you know, that's between us and you don't have to worry about that. That's our relationship and we both love you and like not getting sucked into those kinds of things your kids will figure out what's going on very quickly. It's going to feel really shitty for a while um, of like, I'm not defending myself and he's saying awful things. Not engaging is a, is the best defense in the long run. Um, and that's, you know, that's oh, like with, with my oldest, you know, I remember even my oldest is 24 and a couple of years ago saying, okay, so, uh, you know, now that I'm grown and don't live with either one of you, like, tell me about my dad. Um, you know, like, was he a shit, you know, and I'm like, you know, I've never trashed your dad before. Why would I do it now? And they were kind of like, damn, I was hoping I was going to get the cheese made this time. And your relationship with your dad is your relationship with your dad. And it's not great, but that's because of him, not because of anything that I said. Right. Um, if, If he was able, if he was shitty to me, but wonderful to you, that wouldn't have been, that wouldn't have felt great for me, but it's still, at least you have that relationship. You had a chance to develop it. Yeah. And even when my oldest was much younger, you know, started to recognize like he never comes and gets me and you're always like bending over backwards to make sure I have time with that with him and he doesn't ever make it easy. And thank you. You know, and I'm, and like it was pretty young and noticing that. And I'm like, oh, yeah, you're welcome. I want you to have time with your dad, you know, and not like, yeah, that motherfucker. Um, and that kind of stuff was really important. And that set the tone. And then they said, well, you know, grandma used to tell me shit about him. I'm like, I wish that she hadn't have done that. Your relationship with your dad is your relationship with your dad, not mine, not grandma's. Don't worry about us. It's okay. 
and just reiterating that over and over. And, you know, it's also okay to say, you know, to correct a lie. That's not a true statement. That's not what's going on. I, you know, I guess daddy called me a hoe or whatever. That's not a true statement, but you don't need to worry about that. It's not the same thing as swallowing bullshit, but you're also not engaging in stuff that kids don't need to worry about. Gotcha. Um, And then lastly, just out of my genuine curiosity, I know I just need to read your parenting book next. I'm really excited for that. But um, how have you incorporated sex education in your home, raising your children? And do you have any suggestion to parents about how to go about that just so that they like their mindset is somewhat similar, just like at least guide them in, in that direction if like of how you were raised, you know? Yeah, I mean, super pragmatically. Um, I just I wanted the information out there. I would do a lot of things like I would have age appropriate materials and I would just leave stuff out. So rather than be like, we're going to talk about vulvas today and your kids are like, oh, my God, Um, I would leave materials out that they could read. Um, I would, especially as they hit adolescence, say, um, you know, there's certain things that I want you to know about that we have discussions about. It doesn't have to be with. um, So. I, I was I was widowed in my mid thirties and my late husband was the the father of my son and essentially the father of my eldest. Um he he was pretty much like she would consider him dad versus her biological dad. So um you know, you don't have this man around to ask these questions. I can answer them. Um, or you can have this conversation with your uncle. It was always like, it has to be somebody of my choosing that I'm going to make sure you get good information. I don't want you hearing it on the back of the school bus, but it doesn't have to be me if you're not comfortable with that. Um, and so like, there's so many things that I taught my son, like I taught him how to shave. Um, but when it came down to talking about like solo sex and stuff, he wanted to talk to his uncle who had the same operating equipment and that's fine. So we'd offer that as well. And, you know, and just wanted them to, and talked about everything, like you're going to, you know, be looking at, you know, you're going to find stuff online, erotic images and porn and stuff, and would talk about that normal that you're interested in that, Um, you know, be aware that the reality of sex is not like that's a performance that's meant to be just very engaging. And the reality of sex is not going to be a whole lot like that. And that's okay. Um, But everything was just very, very practical. And of course, because what I do is they knew that I like knew everything. Um, And so I said, if you have questions, I will answer anything. Um, Depending on what the question is, I I mean, most stuff, if I think it's like really good, needful information, I'm going to just answer the question. If it's silliness, like if you're asking me what bukkake is or something, I will give you a fair warning that this is not particularly like, like relevant information. I will answer it, but then you can't unknow the answer. You can't unhear the information. So you might want to consider that. <laughs> <laughs> so um, they would, so they, my son got to the point where I think bukkake was the one that broke him when he's like, no, no, I want to know. And I told him, and he's like, okay, I'm going to listen to you when you give me, um, a fair warning on stuff. And I don't even know what that is. I'm a- yeah, you don't want to know. <laughs> um, and like, you know, both of my kids are in long-term relationships with really good people. Um, my, my son was like the guy that um, everybody loved. Every, every, every girl he dated, families adore him. He's still friends with the moms of people that he dated like in high school. Like they all adored him because he was so kind and so respectful and like just, you know, feminist, woke as fuck man because we had like all these big pragmatic conversations about consent and all these things. Um, yeah. So he, he, um, like he, he and his, and his uh, girlfriend, like when I'm like, you need to 
oh no, uh, Taylor's mom bought it for me, your grandma, like they all adore him. So, you know, I raised a good man that way, um, you know, which is, I think, a, a thing that people ask me about a lot, especially with raising boys in a social system that's really not designed for raising boys. Yeah. Uh, doing that. And he was the kid that when I would get a call from school for him, it was, well, um, this guy was, you know, had his girlfriend cornered and was pressuring her. And um, so your, your son got in a fight, but we watched the tape and he was, he was protecting this girl. So he's not getting suspended. Like that was my kid. Um, we watched the tape. He tapped this guy in the shoulder, told him to get off the girl. He didn't do it. So he, he slugged the guy and that's fine. Uh, so he was very protective and he saw a lot of that. And so we would have pragmatic conversations. He's like, Hey, this guy that's like hitting on you in line at the store, like this is fucking creepy. And, and I would say, yeah, you know what? And I don't think he's even meaning to be creepy. He's just kind of awkward and is trying to strike up a conversation. But then you can see how that that can feel threatening to a right. woman. And so how to be careful of that, of somebody that you're interested in and approach people in a way that doesn't you know, feel threatening, that even somebody well-intentioned could appear threatening. And that's something to think about because you're a big dude. Um, so like everything was sort of this lesson in being a good human in relationships. And I, I think I raised two good kids and people always thought that, you know, my kids must have been hoes that had sex, you know, by age 11 or whatever. Neither of them were. Both of them waited until they really. Just because of the work that you do. The work that I do. Oh. And there's always this idea that if you're super open about it, that means that they're going to do stuff. And that's obviously not true. Um, and both of them waited and, you know, had sex when they wanted to and they felt ready for it. And I also, you know, was a big encourager of solo, solo sex. And that that wasn't a joke and that wasn't funny or silly. And we, you know, we joke about masturbation, haha, but that is a, um, a, a really good way of having sex, especially when you're young and, you know, all these other relationships are harder to navigate. And so was very supportive of that. So they had an option for a sexual release that wasn't about, press, you know, pressuring somebody else into having sex with them. And so um, they both actually did not even have sex with somebody else until they were older than I think people would have. And I don't even know the exact ages because that was theirs to tell me when they wanted to or not. But both of them waited. Right. That's amazing. Oh, you did such a great job. Like, I want to be you. You inspire me. <laughs> well, and, and my kids would also say, like, you know, yeah, sex therapist as a mom was not all bad. Like, you know, <laughs> Yes, mom. You know, I remember my son picking up like it was a copy of Not Your Mother's Meatloaf, which is a sex ed comic. And he's like, graphic novel. Cool. And he's like, damn it, mom. I like I swear to fucking God, I don't need any more information. Um, <laughs> like we don't need everything to be a teachable moment. But I'm like, yeah, but it worked. Y'all are good humans. You're welcome. Right. <laughs> partners that love me you're welcome thank you so much for chatting with me today i would literally keep you i could probably talk to you all day but i'm not going to hold you up so well and, you, and you've got it you've got to chase you've got to chase a little one around my my thank older you. partner has a three-year-old and does a lot of chasing I, and i remember yes. those days myself it's busy for sure um i hope that we were able to bring some valuable content to my listeners um i'll list your links to your books your websites other podcast interviews presentations you've done um, any contact info? I think you're only licensed to teach in Texas. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm only I'm only licensed because um, I do. I always be like, okay, well, now with COVID, everyone's doing telehealth and I'm right. in Iowa. Um, and unfortunately, or, I mean, I hadn't been doing telehealth before. 
COVID. But um, the world has not gotten it together. Licensure is determined by state. So somebody has to be somewhere in Texas for me to work with them. They have to have that Texas address on file. Gotcha. And I know if you can't, if you can't help them, you can at least connect them with someone who might have a similar mindset or you know. Yeah. Um, if I know somebody, I'll give you a name. And I do have people to reach out pretty regularly. And kind of my go-to, a good starting point is generally psychology today. If a therapist is advertising, that's kind of the go-to place that um, we advertise. If we're advertising at all, it is sort of the biggest database. And then you can search by specialty. So you can search for someone who's trauma-informed. You can search for somebody who does divorce work or couples counseling. A lot of people don't do couples counseling. So that's always a good, and you can see which insurances they take and those kinds of things. So that's always a good searchable starting point for people. And also like, just go check people out. And if you don't like them, don't go back. It's fine. Exactly. Yeah. That's what I, I, that's how I found my therapist, but I definitely shopped around for a little while first. I hate using that word shopping because it's not like you want to make sure it's a good fit. You don't want to just like jump in and start like, you want to feel comfortable enough to like, you know, actually get help that you need. But um, yeah, Definitely. Yeah. You know, like I'm very, very practical, strategy-based, solution-focused, especially with people that I know really well. I'm like, what are you doing? Stop that. Um, right. And some people, most, a lot of people, like, they love that. They just want somebody to be like, girl, no. And some people are like, no, I want someone to be nice. And I'm like, I'm not nice. I'm kind, but I'm not nice. And so you yeah. need a different therapist. Yeah, you, you know? need to be practical. Otherwise, you won't be able to get through to those people sometimes, though, too. So it has to be a good fit for both of you. And, you know, if you're wanting somebody that specializes in EMDR or, you know, all those other things, there's people out there that have different specialties. And I have people that are like, I just really, I like, I like CBT. I want a good CBT person. And I'm like, I use that, but that's not my thing. Go see so-and-so. Yeah. Well, thank you again so much. You're amazing. You're super badass. I really appreciate you sharing your time and your thoughts with us today. And uh, to my loyal listeners, thanks for tuning in. And as always, stop letting them unravel you because only you can unravel yourself.